from the beginning, there has been tyranny of various sorts, whether it was over slaves or over women or over others for most of the existence of this country. America as a democracy is much more an aspiration than a reality. You know, we've gotten fairly, we got fairly close to it in the 1970s, and now we are drifting away. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon, or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Ideas, Primary Concerns, Radio Who, What, Why, This Is Hell, The Young Turks, and Full Frontal with Samantha B. To all Americans tonight, in all of our cities, and in all of our towns, I make this promise. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. And we will make America great again. Most people have likely heard Donald Trump's Make America Great Again speech. But what's less known is that he was following a kind of template, one set decades earlier. I am addressing my own boys everywhere in America. To you and only you, I look for help to make America a proud, rich land again. You have been scorned. They thought you were the lower classes. They wouldn't give you jobs. They told you to sneak off like bums and get relief. They said you were no good because you were poor. I tell you that you are the highest lords of the land, the makers of the new America. That's from the novel, It Can't Happen Here. The character Buzz Windrup is gunning to become president. This figure, Buzz Windrup, emerges with, from within the Democratic Party. He's a folksy populist, and he handily defeats FDR and wins the presidential election in 1936. And he quickly concentrates all executive power into himself, banishes all political parties, um, save for his administ- the one his administration has created, which is called the American Corporate State and Patriotic Party, called the Corpo. And um, he basically, you know, starts to impose repression on all dissidents, you know, imposes the death penalty. And in the the novel, it's centered on a small town Vermont newspaper editor named Doremus Jessup and his fight against what becomes an American fascist regime of President Buzz Windrup. And it jets back and forth between the national political scene and this town in Vermont. And what happens is Jessup turns his quiet outrage into action and he starts publishing an underground paper and that's eventually shut down and he winds up in a concentration camp and and um, why I think the book is so prescient today, the book that was published in 1935 was this one character named Shad Ledoux who is the protagonist Doremus Jessup's handyman. I don't pretend to be anything but a plain working stiff, but there's 40 million workers like me, and we know that Senator Windrup is the first statesman in years, thinks of what guys like us need 
before he thinks one doggone thing about politics. Through Chandler's do we get to see the kind of ordinary person's uh, support for um, Buzz Windrup, the dictator. We see the appeal of fascism from the perspective of an ordinary individual. And Chad Ledoux comes to embody the working class and middle class support for someone like Windrup. And you get to see the motives that actually drive fascism on the ground. And what are those motives? What, what, what prompts him to become political the way he Became political. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chad Ledoux, he, and this this is what's so interesting about the book, right? Is and just to back up a little bit, is that historians of fascism have seen correctly that tendency that the the main drivers of fascism come from the middle class. And what really animates him is that he's in a precarious position. He is in a position where he could really fall at any moment, and. Whereas, you know, some people might have a politics of solidarity where they might, you know, unite with other um, workers laterally or other middle class people laterally. Um, what he'd ha- an option he has historically as a working class white man is his whiteness and his masculinity, which allows him a degree of privilege. And what Buzz Windrup allows him to do and authorizes him to do is step on the necks of people who are below him in the hierarchy. And he actually gets a feeling of power and a perverse desire to punish that's fulfilled by occupying and performing that role in his hierarchy. Come on, you bozos. The swell folks tell you not to be selfish. Well, be selfish and vote for the one man that's willing to give you something. Give you something. And not just grab off every cent and every hour of work that he can get. Fascism allows him to keep his class resentment. So even though he gets to, you know, step on, you know, supposedly like, you know, union radicals or communists and Jews and people of color and women, at the same time, it preserves and sharpens in certain ways his class resentment, but it just narrows that class resentment to a new set of elites, a more narrow group of elites that it's defined as the elite, which are, you know, Jews, communists, liberals. So, I mean, we have Sinclair Lewis writing a novel that sort of accurately encapsulates what the United States was like in the 1930s. And now, as you read it, you can see a lot of similarities to what the United States is going through in the presidential election campaign leading up to November. Yeah, yeah. And similarities and the risk of sounding alarmist. Well, you know, fascism was a set of regimes in Europe and some would say Japan in the 30s, and that's not the case today. But at the same time, a fascist mentality is actually closer, I think, to actually assuming the helm of the presidential office than it ever was in the 1930s. Do you think we'll be able to resist or avoid the options that are plainly so frightening to you? I don't think a fascist state is really ever in the cards for the United States or or probably anywhere in North America or Western Europe. I think there are certain traditions of multiculturalism that have become quite mainstream. There is also a kind of an ironic sensibility amongst uh, younger people. There's a willingness to kind of embrace diversity that um, was not there in in the 1930s to as much a great extent. So I, I don't – and I don't think institutionally in um, a place like the United States, you could really have, you know, this set of concentration camps or anything like this. But, you know, a lot of people I think could really be 
hurt by a Trump presidency. I mean, we could have mass deportations. We could have authorized street-level violence. Again, we don't know what's going to happen. A step that we haven't seen, and maybe we'll never see it, is the foundation of kind of shirt movements. You know, if you know, we're really in trouble if a Trump movement or a Trump presidency starts to form shirt movements, right? Like brown of, of shirts. Kind of brown shirts that would that would authorize his supporters to just beat up their opponents in the streets and activate that street-level violence that you saw amongst Coglinite supporters in the 1930s. I mean, I've seen rallies here and even in Connecticut where it's, or one rally in particular, where it almost got to that point. But here's the thing about what how fascism appears to those who are opposed to it. And again, I'm putting him as small f fascism because it's not full-blown really. But it appears as if something that progress made impossible, right? It feels like a backward step. It feels like something from the past that should not be appearing in the present, you know, what you might call an atavism, right? And so the form of racial politics that he brings forward, that you just actually say things at a rally like, are you Mexican to someone who is protesting? Who's protesting? Anybody? Oh, get out of here. Get him out. Get him out. Are you from Mexico? Are you from Mexico? Huh? I mean, I think that is where... Um, are you from Mexico? You know, the, the, that's where he kind of enters the tradition in a lot of ways. You, you said it was like going back, like something coming mm -hmm. out of the past. It also, I would have liked to believe, was something that came not out of America, that this doesn't seem like something that belongs in the American tradition at all. Yes, maybe in Europe, perhaps even South America. But but the United States has a tradition of democracy and of public involvement mm -hmm. and in, an informed, intelligent public that should make this impossible. Well, yeah, but and I think that's important. I, I agree, and I and I think that there's an important thing to keep in mind: the difference between a fascist state and fascist movements. Those are will always be cultivated and stoked as long as you have racism, as long as you have um, Islamophobia, as long as you have um, rampant misogyny, you're going to have the wellsprings of a fascist sensibility. So what you're saying to me makes a lot of sense with respect to a sort of rank-and-file Republican voter. Um, it's sort of the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Some people will pick the devil you don't. Um, some people are just habituated to voting a certain way. Some people have years-long distaste for Hillary Clinton. Some people were particularly upset about you know, her email practices, her, her foundation practices, which garnered a lot of attention during the campaign. But But somebody like Paul Ryan... You know, he gets intelligence briefings. He understands the similarities between Trump's style of politics and somebody like Vladimir Putin's. At that level where you've worked your whole life because you have a suite of ideas you want to enact, does your value system kind of get like cocked onto its side a little bit where you decide that if I confuse Trump's authoritarianism with my policy agenda, maybe that's not ideal, but it's better than four more years of Obama style centrist liberalism? Why? 
I was, ex- you know, when, when Ted Cruz gave that speech at the convention where he said, vote your conscience, mm-hmm. I thought that's an opening for maybe not the Speaker of the House, but for a suite of principled conservatives to say, okay, this is not our party. Yeah. But then obviously, like over the course of the next several weeks, that opening closed. Mm-hmm. And I wonder why at that level of politics, there wasn't more of a, you know, why weren't there more McMullins? Well, one of the things you said early on there was that, you know, they get the briefings, these these mm-hmm. leaders, not the rank and file right. Republican voters, but the leaders mm-hmm. get the intelligence briefing. So they must have known the threat that Donald Trump posed to the country. But I actually don't think that's true. I think most elected Republican leaders still uh, did not fully understand it. They understood that Donald Trump did not reflect their values. They understood that he would likely be extremely corrupt, mm-hmm. I think. Some of them understood well the threat that he posed, truly understood those with military experience, those that were maybe privy to more intelligence. Not everybody in the, in the House of Representatives has the same level of access to intelligence. Um, but even and and that should have been enough, I'll tell you, you know, there were discussions about, for example, RT America, which is the Russia, right. Russian cable channel in the United States that is sem- essentially, you know, pro Trump propaganda and, and, uh, promote stories that undermine Americans confidence in, in democracy and in our democratic institutions. So there were those kinds of activities. There were also, you know, discussions about, Donald Trump's relationship to Vladimir Putin and the nature of it and how troubling it was and and some very serious assessments about what that meant. And that should have been enough. Let me make that clear. Right. And in fact, it's very disappointing that it wasn't. Um, but I still think even in that, a lot of our elected leaders did not fully understand and still do not what a danger he presents to the country. And, you know, people who have lived abroad under authoritarian regimes like I have, we know what it looks like. And so it's it's not new to us. We can identify it for what it is very quickly. Um, or if you're a student of history, then you can do that too. But if you don't have either one of those two experiences, learning experiences, it's, it is very difficult to identify. Now, with all of that said, yes, I do think clearly, and I've said it over and over again, that a lot of Republicans put party over country, put power over principle. Uh, they did it, uh, in an, in a number of ways. I do think in not all of them, there are some who, who distinctly did not. Mm-hmm. I wish they would have been more vocal. Uh, I think they should have been more vocal. I think we need leaders who would have stood up and been more forceful about it. But we, in general, we, uh, you know, we have a problem in our country and it's exposed on the right in that we have too many leaders who are willing to sacrifice the country's interests in order to protect their own seats, in this case, in Congress. Right. I mean, what's up? Is it just then because, you know, President Obama, I don't know if he ever called Trump an authoritarian during the campaign, but he basically said this guy, like democracy is on the ballot was one of his mm-hmm. stump speech lines. Um, he, he made it, I think, as plain as possible that this was not so much Republicans versus Democrats, liberals versus conservatives, but small D Democrats versus yeah, right. uh, anti-democratic forces. Right. And, you know, I'm, I I kind of struggle to remember exact quotes from people like Marco Rubio and, and Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush during the primary. But, you know, a moral um, right. uh, unfit to be president, um, possibly even strong man, like very, very 
severe criticisms of him as being temperamentally different from right. from a, a more standard issue Republican. If you're serving in Congress as this is all going on, do you just think of that bipartisan criticism of Trump from Obama to Jeb Bush mm-hmm. um, as just campaign trail histrionics or why was it not a bigger deal, do you think, to Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell that members of their own conferences were saying, this guy's a danger. He shouldn't have nuclear weapons. He doesn't understand democracy. Yeah, I mean, look, this is a source of my disappointment. I mean, you had uh, some of the his, some of Trump's primary contenders uh, saying that he was a con man, that he was a danger to the country, the, this sort of thing, uh, the things that you mentioned. Um, but then they came around and supported Donald Trump, and you know, I I think that that very uh, metamorphosis demonstrates a lack of principle for a lot of our leaders is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. And you can't say those things. Uh, I, I assume that they meant them. I believe that they meant them because they, they were accurate after all. But then to be able to set those things aside and ultimately support Donald Trump is indeed uh, troubling and reflects very poorly on those leaders' commitment to our country and commitment to the principles that underpin democracy and basic liberties and equality in America. So, you know, it's it's truly troubling to me and and is what it is. And 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 that's why I've been calling for a new era of civic engagement in this country where we proactively identify people who will be honest and wise leaders and promote them into office. So not merely passively seeing who decides to run and who the parties put up for us to vote for, but actually go out and identify our friends, our colleagues, our neighbors who would make good leaders, who we would make good leaders and convince them to run, find support for them and promote them into office. This is the sort of thing we need to do. This is about self-governance after all, and we can no longer be passive about it. We, we, we simply can no longer afford to sit back and be passive participants in this process. Authoritarian regimes, particularly this one, are the product of coalitions. To what extent should the effort be made to to pry apart those coalitions? Well, look, first of all, you know, uh, people like me can hold forth. Um, Even like, like real political leaders who have political supporters or organizations behind them can hold forth about the strategies that they think make most sense. That doesn't mean that lots of people are going to listen to them. So, I mean, I'll offer you my sense of a proper answer to that question. In my view, it is important to to take advantage of and um, 
splits within the Republican Party when possible. It's important to keep open lines of communication with certain Republicans on certain issues, particularly with regard to the more disturbing and authoritarian dimensions of where Trump seems to be headed. It it would be important when there are splits within the Republican Party to be mindful of them. At the same time, I think it's also important to to pursue a longer term agenda that is consistent with your values. So, yeah, uh, exploiting the divisions, I I would even say in a less instrumental sense, keeping open lines of communication. But keeping open lines of, of communications does not mean like laying down to those guys. Do we have to make a distinction? Given the nature of this battle, given the nature of of the authoritarian danger, do we have to make a distinction between policy and Trump himself? And and do we have to look at it as opposition to the danger of authoritarianism from Trump versus worrying about policy with regard to Republicans? Is that a distinction with a real difference? Uh, It is in the sense that we would be having a different conversation. In fact, we, we, I wouldn't be on the air talking mm-hmm. about the topic of this conversation if most of the other, if Jeb Bush were president. Right. Okay. I, I would still oppose Jeb Bush. We could be talking about lots of things that were bad about, or that I thought were bad, bad about a Bush administration, but we would not be having this conversation about Hitler and Mussolini and why people are reading George Orwell. Right. Okay. So there's, there's a distinctive danger to the Trump administration um, that is kind of over and above whatever policy differences exist between, let's say, Democrats or liberal Democrats and uh, Republicans. That's true. At the same time, I would I would make two clarifying points. One is that the danger of Trump's authoritarianism is not just Trump. It's the Trump administration. It's the people he has around him. It's uh, and he has a group around him. And it's some of those constituencies, the people that he listens to, who who he's reading. OK. Um, and so the, the, the in the first instance, the danger of authoritarianism under Trump is not just about Trump as an individual, but about an entire administration. Uh, the administration as a whole is pretty far to the right. So that's one point. It's not just Trump. But the second point is the administration uh, was elected in a context and has been enabled by a broader Republican Party. The Republican Party, people like, let's say, Paul Ryan, I wouldn't describe them as neo-fascist, let's say, in the same way that I would describe Trump that way or some or Bannon that way. But um, but the fact is, um, conservatives uh are often the enablers of right-wing extremists when they're not themselves right-wing extremists or fascists. So yes, there's a policy difference between uh, the, the Republican Party as a whole and the, the authoritarian danger of Trumpism, but they're closely, closely linked. They, it's hard to separate them out from each other. Yeah, Trump is not simply an extension of the Republican Party, but the Republican Party is not in any sense a counter to him. It's an enabler of him. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. 
Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestoftheleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. My one ambition is to get all Americans to realize that they are and must continue to be the greatest race on the face of this old earth. Buzz Windrup, a senator who later became the first dictator president of the United States. And second, to realize that whatever apparent differences there may be among us in wealth, knowledge, skill, ancestry, or strength, though of course all of this does not apply to people who are racially different from us, We are all brothers, bound together in the great and wonderful bond of national unity, for which we should all be very glad. That excerpt from It Can't Happen Here, the 1935 novel by Sinclair Lewis. Well, I think that citing Sinclair Lewis is a good place to start. It's actually a very good novel in a journalistic way. And one of the things that Lewis taps into in that novel of the 1930s is the way that fascism, when it came to America, would have an American face. Adam Gopnik is a writer with The New Yorker, a former Massey lecturer, and a frequent contributor to ideas. His furor, his his American duce, is a a figure of the 30s. He's companionable and he has a hearty uh, Will Watchers kind of quality. And not surprisingly, Donald Trump uh, has a celebrity television, reality uh, TV quality. That's the face that uh, fascism, let's not uh, mince words, will take in America. I think it's a mistake, actually, Paul, to think that there's some neat causal sequence here, uh, globalization or the uh, the economic downturn of 2008 is responsible for alienating a great many white working class people and therefore they turn to a character like Trump. As you know, that's a very familiar analysis. And obviously when we're talking about groups of hundreds of millions of people, there are bound to be individuals who fit that description. But I think at a, a deeper level, the real question I think worth asking isn't so much how does ethnic nationalism assert itself in Trump's case or in any other case, but how have we stayed outside it for as long as we have? How are we able to uh, insist on the norms or persuade people to accept the norms of a pluralist society? And that, I think, is in a way the right way to see it is to see it the other way around, because we know that left to their own devices, uh, human beings, tragically, always tend to... uh, devolve, if you like, towards ethnic nationalist politics. If I had to guess about why we've had this uprising in the past year in America, I do think it's a consequence, a kind of built-in attraction repulsion of the Obama years. And the, the real paradox of this moment, I think, Paul, is that simultaneously you see the rise of 
call it what you will, populist authoritarianism, ethnic nationalism, call it fascism with an American face. At the same time, as you see, that Barack Obama remains an extraordinarily popular figure, the most popular American president at the end of his term, certainly since Clinton, and more popular even than Ronald Reagan was. And it's clear that those of us who see Barack Obama as essentially a centrist, liberal, pluralist figure fail to understand that he's a figure of enormous and kind of uh, primordial threat to a great many of uh, our American countrymen, that he's seen not as a conciliatory figure, but as a deeply disruptive figure. And what he disrupts are the continuities of white American nationalism. But if I was to turn that question upside down, then why haven't we seen earlier instances of this kind of political phenomenon, call it fascism or whatever, why hasn't that appeared frequently in American history in the past? Well, I think it has. I think the answer is that it has. Now, we could ask, why is it that it's never before come this close to power? And that, I think, is a reasonable question. But I wish we could look at American history without seeing exactly this kind of demagogic white ring nationalism, but we can't. You know, one of my favorite moments where you see it coming up goes all the way back to um, Mark Twain's descriptions of America before the Civil War. If you read about, if you remember Huck Finn's pap in the great novel, Huckleberry Finn, you'll remember that pap, the town drunk, who's abusive and absurd, when he gets drunk enough, he l launches into a screed about how this government ain't a government anymore. Um, and why isn't it a government? It's because they allow free blacks to vote. Oh, yes. This is a wonderful government. Wonderful. Well, looky here. There was a free from Ohio, a mulatter, most as white as a white man. He had the whitest shirt on you ever see, too. And he picks on an uppity black man, uncannily like Barack Obama. And the shiniest hat. And there ain't a man in that town's got as fine clothes as what he had. And he had a gold watch and chain and a silver-headed cane. Who he saw being allowed to vote. And it just enraged him. They said he could vote. What is this country a-coming to? And it's quite clear that that sense that there needs to be uh, an underclass, that there needs to be uh, a people who are safely beneath embattled uh, white ethnics uh, is a very, very powerful one in American history. So I don't think it is an entirely new thing. And the reasonable question is, is how does it gotten so close to taking power? And that, I think, is a good question. You know, Donald Trump talks about deporting people based on their religion. That would have been inconceivable from a major national politician not that long ago. We're understandably and appropriately reluctant to use the word fascism too liberally, so to speak, <laughs> because we understand that the consequences of fascism in Europe were so unimaginably dire that we don't want to stick uh, uh, every populist authoritarian with that same label. But it's not wrong, you know. I had the, um, I don't know whether to call it the good fortune or the ill fortune, to actually read Hitler's Mein Kampf a few months ago. It was being republished in German, and I read it in for the first time in English and in German, drawing on my graduate school German, which is none too good. Nonetheless, one of the things that's startling about it, to read it, is that 
Uh, we think of Hitler because of the ultimate consequences of Hitler as being above all an anti-Semite, and God knows he's an anti-Semite in Mein Kampf. But the theme of the book is make Germany great again. That's what it's all about. And it's exactly the notion that there's a conspiracy against the true Volk, against the true ethnic core of Germany, against the real Germany, as we have the real America, and that that conspiracy takes in both threatening outsiders, Muslims or Mexicans who are going to come in against us, and simultaneously has already subverted the democratic institution so that the people in Weimar Germany, the, the liberal Democrats, were themselves tools of these conspiring outsiders. And we have exactly the same pattern with Trump and Trumpism. Uh, it's Obama is an alien outsider who's truly, something's going on, is Trump's formula, meaning that he's really in league with the Muslim terrorists who are coming uh, to get us. So that form, not only of hyperextended nationalism, but of a nationalism that depends on a pervasive outside threat that has already taken over the institutions of the so-called democracy, that's exactly the core ideology of what we properly call fascism. Yes, we have to look at mosques and we have to respect mosques. But yes, we have to see what's happening because something is happening in there. Man, there's anger. There's anger. And we have to know about it. We One of the crucial things to see always, Paul, is that it, that kind of feeling doesn't need an economic cause to assert itself. You know, one of the greatest mistakes of uh, progressive politics and of left-wing analyses in the 20th century seems to me the belief that all political action ultimately has an economic cause, so that if people are turning to a figure like Trump, white working-class men, for instance, who are the core of his support, that it must be because they're under some kind of economic stress. But every correlation you can see, every search for what is it that these people have in common finds very little economic causation, very little economic pain that they all have in common, and an enormous sense of racial beleaguerment, an enormous sense of threatened identity. And so for the people like Trump who say, let's make America great again, what they really mean in plain English is let's make America white again. And I will stand What would you say to somebody who says, who argues that, sure, back then at the beginning of this nation, it might have been vulnerable to tyranny, but now we've been around for 240 years and the likelihood of uh, tyranny happening is very slim. The, it, it, it makes sense that the founding fathers would have been concerned about it, but we don't need to be con concerned about it now. I guess, your, your devil's advocate is, is not so is not so convincing. So I'm going to say, <laughs> but I'm going to, answer, I'm going to answer you on the substance anyway. I mean that 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 view that you've just described is American exceptionalism of a really naive kind, which I think no true patriot can actually look himself or herself in the eyes and accept. We have had a, a constitutional system with a rule of law from the beginning, but we have not been a democracy from the beginning. There has been tyranny of various sorts, whether it was over slaves or over women or over others for most of the existence of this country. America as a democracy 
is much more an aspiration than a reality. You know, we've gotten fairly, we got fairly close to it in the 1970s, and now we are drifting away. So the two basic things I would say is, first, we're not exceptional. If you say America's exceptional or that it can't happen here or that our institutions will save us, you are then, you know, whether you want to or not, taking the side of the tyrants, taking the side of the authoritarians, because when you can't, when you say it can't happen here, you're making it happen here, because it's only the individual citizen and, and his or her actions that prevents it from happening here. That's the first thing that I, that I would say. Um, the second thing that I would say is that if, you, if one looks around at the state of American democracy before Mr. Trump was elected, things were really not well. Um, you know, with, with the gerrymandering, with the voter, voter suppression laws, with the unlimited money in politics, with the Electoral College itself, which the founders left us, we are somewhere between, you know, a democracy and an oligarchy. And it's just, it's just dreaming to think that there weren't already crises before this man was elected. This person has his own problems, but he also is an embodiment of the problems of the American democracy that we already had and already had to struggle with. This is exactly why I wanted you on our show, Tim. Thank you. That was a great response. There are critics who have used any variation of the word fascist or fascism to describe the actions of the Trump administration, whether it's neo-fascist or pre-fascist or proto-fascist. Is it unfair to label Trump as any variation of fascist? And is it more accurate framing, again, the actions the administration has taken in the first 100 days through a more general lens of tyranny than through a more specific lens of fascism? Mm-hmm. So, I, first of all, it reminds me of a, of a recent obsession I've had with political correctness. Um, I mean, basically, the, the most politically correct thing on the right in this country is now to call other people politically correct. And yet one notices that it's there's a very strong taboo about using references to history to describe problems in the present. As soon as one makes any reference to fascism or the 1930s, immediately one hears that there's no resemblance, that history doesn't repeat, and so on and so forth. So the approach that I take in the book is to is to describe not not to describe the Trump administration, which remember, I mean, hadn't even started when I wrote the book. So you know, any resemblance right. between things I wrote in December and events now, you know, shows how useful history is in describing and even in predicting. But the approach that that I take is to be be humble about history, to notice that democracy usually fails, whether it's in the direction of fascism or communism or national socialism or just plain old kleptocracy, which is the the, the current um, dominant form of, of tyranny, and to try to learn general lessons to read the people who are smarter than we facing challenges that are greater than the challenges we face, um, to accept that their generosity and leaving behind lessons of their own experience, and then to look for places where those lessons apply. It seems to me that that is more important than a specific label. Now, that said, with, with Trump, I mean, it, it, I think it's appropriate to say that there are certain things that he does or that Mr. Bannon does or things that they say, which are very similar to fascism. So the Trump rallies, if you read the transcripts, they are they resemble very strongly the records that are left to us of, of rallies of fascists or national socialists in the 20s or 30s. The speech patterns that he has, no doubt unwillingly or unknowingly, are very similar to speech patterns that fascists use. And this is one of the points I make in, in, in the book. And there's also there's certain kinds of fascist politics, like, for example, looking at globalization and saying globalization is not a challenge. Globalization is a personal problem. We're going to put a face on globalization, whether it's the Chinese or the Mexicans or the Jews or the elites or what have you. That's a fascist tactic to say, no, we can't face up to these challenges. Therefore, we're going to give them a face. 
We're going to delude the population. We're going to delude the people into saying there's one particular enemy that's responsible for for the the the, the objective problems of the world. So I mean, whether I, I think like just sticking a label on something doesn't solve a problem, but I do think that recognizing the resemblances between the politics of 2017 and the politics of the 1930s can be can be very instructive. Yeah. You were mentioning the words of Steve Bannon and the uh, the words of Donald Trump that may sound in some way fascistic, uh, or people might think that it sounds that way. You write, the mistake is to assume that people who come to power through institutions cannot change or destroy those very institutions, even when that is exactly what they have announced that they will do. Revolutionaries sometimes do intend to destroy institutions all at once. How much do we underestimate the power or value or reality of political rhetoric. Do we not take it seriously enough? Do we take it too seriously? How much does even underestimating a politician's words, how much can that lead to tyranny? That's a wonderful question. And I just, I want to, I want to repeat your premise because it's so important. The, The research of political scientists shows that in most of the recent transitions, to authoritarian regimes, the the leader who engineers the transition was elected. That that is that that's the the method of choice at this point. So the fact that someone was elected does not mean that an electoral system will continue in any meaningful way. That that's that's a very important premise. And therefore, the, the question becomes so important: What do we know about the leader before he comes to power? In, in Mr. Trump's case, he made it very clear that he would not respect the outcome of the election, i.e. he's not a Democrat. His whole, his whole long life has been a challenge to the rule of law. He admires foreign tyrants, but doesn't admire or doesn't even know the existence of important American figures. Um, you know, Frederick Douglass is an obvious example. Uh, so we're looking for all we knew the man was an aspiring tyrant. And although it seems, you know, it seems odd to say so, it somehow seems orthogonal to how we're used to talking. He made that very clear to us that he didn't have any respect for these basic American institutions. And that was, I think, the source of a lot of his popularity, because a lot of Americans also don't. Uh, How we misplayed it was to see it as entertainment. So the man, you know, the the man has um, certain skills, and he has certain talents, and he has a certain kind of intelligence. And that the the skills, talents, and intelligence are directed towards a form of public relations in which he draws you into the notion that life is really just reality television, that it's all just about feeling entertained for a moment or or feeling affirmed for a moment. And what what the big networks did for far, far too long was to allow that reality show to go on and to allow us to be entertained. But it turned out that the entertainment was, was far too close to, to seduction, in fact. And we let the nature of a democratic campaign be fundamentally changed sort of day by day before our eyes. So it's entertaining for someone to, for someone to destroy all of the norms of conventional behavior. It was entertaining, but it's also extremely dangerous, and that's where we are. As always, I want to tell you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you, listeners like Catherine C. and Sunny D., not to be confused with the orange juice. Both of those are professional protester members, so huge thanks to them for going above and beyond, and to all of the other members and donors who help keep this show going. We are now set up on Patreon, where you can make monthly donations starting as low as a buck a month. Membership-level donations are higher, but they include a separate members podcast feed, which includes ad-free versions 
versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content. Regular listeners of the show will know that I recently instituted a two-rerun-per-month policy after I figured out that I was working way too much, to be frank. Uh, But in exchange, members get bonus episodes of Amanda and I doing some deep dives into topics on those rerun days. So it's a win-win. I'm happy to announce that I have managed to start working a little bit less, and members get more for their much-needed support of the show. So to support our work and get instant access to all of that, either find Best of Left on Patreon, or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. On Friday at 8 p.m., Donald Trump decided to send a press release to reporters indicating that he has pardoned Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Now, Sheriff Joe Arpaio uh, was found guilty by a federal judge of federal criminal contempt of court. And that's because of the racial profiling that went on in his department in Maricopa County, Arizona. Now, uh, Donald Trump had hinted that he planned on pardoning him, and he has done so. In a tweet, uh, Trump wrote, I am pleased to inform you that I have uh, just granted a full pardon to 85-year-old American patriot Sheriff Joe Arpaio, he kept Arizona safe. He did not keep Arizona safe. Uh, In fact, there were a lot of uh, pretty terrible things that he did to individuals who weren't white simply because of the way they looked. Racial profiling happened to be one of them. A federal judge ruled in July that Arpaio had defied a court order to stop profiling Latinos for detention based solely on suspicions about their immigration status. So cops would just stop Latinos uh, that they suspected of being in the country illegally and start harassing them, which you can't do. By law, you can't do. And so a court let Arpaio know that he can't do that, and he continued to do that, which is why he was found guilty of criminal contempt of court. Can now, I just, sorry, mm-hmm. Anna, let me just jump in there for a second, because I want to clarify something that's really important. Um, so yes, there's the, the racial angle here, which is that he did not go after uh, undocumented people in particular. He went after all Latinos. Uh, the Justice Department said it, he oversaw, this is a quote, oversaw the worst pattern of racial profiling by a law enforcement agency in United States history. So that is incredible. But I think even more important is the court told them, hey, listen, you're going after people for federal issues, not for county issues, but for federal issues, which is immigration. That's not your job, don't do that, that's part one. So you have no business doing that. Number two, in order to go after people in our system of government, you need some sort of suspicion, either a a probable cause or reasonable suspicion to even investigate them. Mm -hmm. You need any kind of evidence that they did something wrong, but you're not doing that. What you're doing is you're going into Latino communities and rounding people up, even though you have no suspicion of them and you have no evidence. That is as unconstitutional as it gets. That's as un-American as it gets. It's against the law, it's against the law. And the person who decided to pardon him was the same individual who said over and over again on the campaign trail that he was in favor of law and order. In fact, let's take a look at what Trump had to say during his RNC speech. In this race for the White House, I am the law and order candidate. So I hate Republican marketing. Well, the only thing I can't stand more is that the Democrats are so incompetent they can't counter it. He is not for law and order. 
So when when you don't listen to our court system and you reward that, you say, okay, this guy didn't listen to the judges, he didn't listen to the law, even though he was supposed to be executing the law. And you say, congratulations. As long as you hate Latinos and illegally round them up, I don't care about the rule of law. And you know what, I'm not gonna follow the regular pardon procedure. Yes, Trump has the ability to pardon people, mm -hmm. but there's a procedure that you normally go through. I'm not gonna follow the procedure. I'm not gonna go to the Justice Department. I'm not gonna make him apologize. I'm not gonna make him do anything because I. what Trump just declared is, as long as you're a political ally of mine, you're above the law. Right, and, and keep in mind that historically when pardons happen, it's because that individual has some sort of redeeming quality, right? And in this case, I don't really know what the redeeming quality is, he hasn't explained it. And so even though he has been convicted of a federal crime, he doesn't have to deal with the same you know, treatment that convicted felons have to deal with. So for instance, Arpaio says that now he's considering running for office. And I was like, you're federally convicted, you're a convict, can you do that? And you can, if you've been pardoned by the president, you can run for office. And so he says he's planning it, we'll see what happens. But again, the racial profiling is just the tip of the iceberg. In fact, the fine people at Maricopa County have paid tens of millions of dollars in fighting or paying for Sheriff Joe's legal fees. So keep that in mind. Also, let's go to graphic 23. He also infamously jailed hundreds of inmates in open air facility, in an open air facility known as Tent City under the intense Arizona sun. So he purposely made it an open air facility. In 2008, documentary filmmakers actually recorded him calling it a concentration camp. So he was super proud of himself. By the way, these are people who are detained because they're suspected of being undocumented immigrants, right? So in a lot of cases, they haven't even had their day in court yet, but it doesn't matter. They deserve to be in concentration camps. Also, Mr. Arpaio was found guilty of criminal contempt for continuing to illegally profile Latinos living in Arizona based on their perceived immigration status in violation of a judge's order. The president has the authority to make this pardon, but doing so at this time undermines his claim for the respect of rule of law as Mr. Arpaio has shown no remorse for his actions. That's not something a reporter said, that's something that a Republican lawmaker said. That was a statement from Senator John McCain from Arizona. So yeah, so now why is he doing this? One, he never cared about the rule of law. I mean, that he's been trying to obstruct justice from day one on the Russian investigations about his team to begin with. Which leads us to the real reason he did this. Yeah, he likes Arpaio. So when Arpaio brags about concentration camps for Latinos, some of whom are perfectly innocent and none of which he had evidence on to begin with, okay? Trump doesn't see that as the bug, he sees that as a feature. He's like, bravo, but that's not what this is about. The main reason Trump is doing this is he's testing his limits. He's like, well, if I can pardon a political ally like Arpaio and there's no consequence. Well, then if Mike Flynn is gonna turn evidence against me for my campaign and my administration and Paul Manafort, my former campaign manager, if they say to him, hey, you must answer to Congress, otherwise you're in contempt of Congress or you must answer a subpoena or you're in contempt of court. He's telling Manafort and Flynn, it's okay, I'm gonna pardon you. I just did a pardon of Arpaio, another political ally who was in contempt of court. That's okay, be in contempt of court. Block the investigation. So, look, if he pardons anyone from his own campaign or his own administration, it is 
definitively grounds for impeachment. That is obvious obstruction of justice. If you don't stop him there, then we become a totally lawless country. Then he could commit crimes, pardon himself. His administration members can commit crimes, pardon themselves. And they go, oh, you can't collect evidence because we won't give it to you. Well, you're in contempt of court, don't care, pardon. So if we don't act now, we lose our democracy. It's not an overstatement. This is exactly how dictators begin. This is exactly how fascism begins, where a strong man comes in and says, I'm not gonna follow the law and I don't care what judges say, I'm above judges. And that's just not the case. That's not our system of government. And if we allow it to be our system of government, he will continue to abuse it. So I don't know if the Republicans have it in them to say this is the line in the sand. If you pardon anyone related to investigations of your administration or your campaign, we will go for impeachment. But they, and if they don't, they should all be voted out. Otherwise, we're not gonna have laws in this country. We're gonna have strong men who don't believe in our democracy. So I want everybody to be clear on this. So we're doing a petition. I think that Sheriff Joe Arpaio being pardoned was outrageous. But if Donald Trump starts to pardon his own campaign officials and administration officials, that is clear obstruction of justice and he should immediately be impeached. TYTnetwork.com slash pardon is the website here in the link and we'll have the link down below. If Donald Trump pardons anyone from his campaign or administration involved in the Russia investigation, he should be impeached immediately. So we're not saying impeach right now, we're, I'm being very clear about it. But if the lawlessness that he demonstrated with Arpaio and letting him ignore court orders is now brought over to his own administration, then we do have an impeachable offense. Not that he can't do pardons, but that he is clearly obstructing justice and saying anyone who is being investigated should not work with the FBI, should not work with the courts, and I'll pardon them later. We can't have that kind of lawlessness in America. We need petitions like this to be gigantic, so you make it clear to Republicans and Democrats alike, do not tolerate him actually pardoning his own team. If he does that, that should be grounds for impeachment. Russian author and dissident Masha Gessen knows autocracy firsthand. I originally spoke with her before I visited Moscow, which was before our election. And she had some reassuring words about a potential Trump presidency. I feel like we're staring into an abyss. Now that we're actually plummeting into that abyss, I sought out Masha again for more of her comforting insights. This time, I took her to the only place I feel truly safe. Hey, Julie D. My subterranean panic room. This way. Come on in. Have a seat. Thank you. Do you care for a soup? I've been coming in here and stress eating quite a bit. Not much left. So I guess my first question is, 
What is the recipe for successfully resisting an autocracy? I get asked that a lot. Mm -hmm. So? You know, I had to flee my country. Okay. Most efforts to successfully resist that I know of failed. Well, thanks for joining us for another edition of Bunker Talk with Samantha B. Today's guest was, hmm, I should ask for another question. What are your biggest worries about the incoming Trump administration? Oh, my biggest worry is a nuclear holocaust. Thanks again for joining us for Bunker Talk with Samantha B. If miraculously we avoid that, okay. then, you know, he's certain to do irreparable damage to the environment that will make the survival of the human species impossible. I thought you were going to kind of like ease me into it. Just the tip at first. But there's very little we can do. So I stick to little things like the impossibility of going on to democracy after Trump. Where are we in the whole downfall of America thing? I mean, can you show me on this chart where rock bottom is? So let's say this little mark here represents, you know, in the primaries talking about creating a Muslim registry. Okay. A little bit downhill from there. Mexicans are rapists. And then, of course, grab them by the pussy. Just get another page. And I need more paper. What low points do you expect to see in our near future? Well, he's going to lift the sanctions against Russia. He's going to start banning one newspaper after another from the White House. He is going to start thinking about wars. He is going to go to the Putin model of holding one press conference a year. Hold on a second. Jesus. Okay, are we at rock bottom yet? No, no, no. So suppose some cities refuse to cooperate with deportations. So he calls on the American people to start reporting immigrants. I think that's that's when we start getting into really disgusting territory. Is that rock sets, bottom? No, no, that's not rock bottom. But that will be the beginning, you know, of a culture of citizen against citizen. Okay, so that's rock bottom, and then we bounce back. So there's a Russian joke. We thought we had hit rock bottom, and then someone knocked from below. I'm sure that joke's funnier in the original Russian, just as Trump's pronouncements would likely sound better screamed in German. And speaking of Trump speaking... In this way, he's very similar to Putin. He uses language to assert his power over reality. Mm -hmm. What he's saying is, I claim the right to say whatever the hell I please. And what are you going to do about it? It's hard for me to believe that he has the cunning to be perpetrating this intentionally. It's it's instinctual. It's, you know, it's what it's a bully in a playground. Okay. You know, it's like imagine the little kid who says to you, you know, give me my pencil box back. And he says, I don't have your pencil box, but it's right there in mm -hmm. your right hand. There's nothing in my right hand. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what he's doing. The point is not so much to take your pencil box. It's 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 to render you completely powerless because everything you know how to do which is to say, it's right there, it's right there, is useless. And you look foolish, no matter what. You don't come out cool. And you don't get your box back either. Meaning the box that Trump grabbed, the one containing a functioning democracy. And also meaning your vagina box. Is there anything that I personally can do to resist? The thing I think to do, um, and this is my recipe, is to actually to continue panicking to continue to be sort of the hysteric in the room and to keep saying, this is not normal. I can stay hysterical. Good. good. <laughs> keep doing that. And just remember why you're panicking. Write a note to yourself about what you would never do. Okay. And when you come to the line, don't cross it. Okay. What if Ivanka wants to come on your show? Ivanka? No. 
Why, do you think she'd do it? <laughs> she asking about me? Masha and I had an extensive and encouraging conversation. Really, it's the nuclear holocaust that I'm worried about. <laughs> There it is again. All right, I am never leaving this room. We've just heard clips today starting with ideas examining in two parts the classic novel It Can't Happen Here and its relevance to today. Primary Concerns spoke with Evan McMullen, a conservative independent presidential candidate, about how to spot authoritarianism and the failures of the GOP to recognize the danger Trump poses. Radio Who, What, Why discussed opposing conservative policies and authoritarianism. This is Hell talked with Timothy Snyder about the prospect of tyranny in America. The Young Turks looked at the Joe Arpaio pardon as an example of Trump testing the limits of his power in a dangerous way. And finally, we just heard Full Frontal with Samantha Bee talking with Masha Gessen about what to expect out of an authoritarian government. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Anthony from Illinois. Um, I wanted to call in and offer some thoughts and just some ideas to chew on about the conflict I've seen over the idea of freedom of speech in response to Charlottesville, but also maybe more broadly to some of the far right speakers such as Ann Coulter, Milo Yiannopoulos, and others. When I was listening to Nick from California's comments a couple episodes ago and the segments on nuclear policy and things like that, I, I kind of find myself agreeing that I don't know if I can hold the ACLU itself completely and wholly accountable for the violence that happened in Charlottesville, even though I think that their decision to have the rally and support the rally was a mistake. And I'll kind of get into that a little bit more. Why I don't think the ACLU is in a necessarily bad spot was that I think that they, as Nick kind of illustrated in his own comments, I think they kind of took things, it seems at face value, that on face value it seems almost as if this was a purely freedom of speech issue, a pure issue of needing of this idea of wanting to share opinions in a public sphere and you know normally i in my old life as kind of more of a classic liberal i would i would tend to agree you know i think that there should be this idea of a broad freedom of speech for all persons um but one of the things that i'm kind of struggling with and maybe you or others who are more enlightened on this area can offer is One of the things that I've seen in a response to why violence seemed to have sprung out of Charlottesville, for me, it hasn't seemed to have been as a response to Antifa, but some of the sources that I've seen have talked about how leading up to this event, I think, you know, months, weeks, and days beforehand, there was a real presence online of persons who decided that they were going to agitate for violence and agitate for turning this rally from something that is, you know, a quote-unquote free speech rally to something else entirely. And it doesn't surprise me necessarily because I think that 
people are kind of aware, you know, if this is an idea that if we come out outright and say that we might be seeking violence or that our words can be taken violently, I think a lot of people, even, you know, free speech advocates, might be more hesitant to defend these people. But one of the things I was, I've been kind of struggling with is I kind of wonder to a certain extent how informed the ACLU keeps themselves on different cases. Um, you know, I was thinking about what's happened in Berkeley over the past couple of months and how I think kind of a similar pattern of things has come out where you'll see people saying, oh, you know, even though Milo's message is abhorrent, you know, he still deserves the right to speak or, you know, well, you know, Ann Coulter's views are repugnant, you know, but because free speech, they have to be allowed to speak. Um, but one of the questions I, I will return to again is when some of these intentions become more clear of, you know, the possibility to, to lead to violence, um, I'm thinking of some of the responses I've seen who, you know, dug in deeper to figure out that Milo's initial speech that, or at least one of his initial speeches that he planned at Berkeley was to out transgender and undocumented persons on campus and therefore could indeed leave them open to being harassed, perhaps physically targeted and things like that. So I guess what I'm struggling with is when the possibility is there and when there are outside forces who are proclaiming that they will be there with the intent, all intents and purposes of committing violent acts, does there, therefore, does that, in my opinion, it should, but does that mean that we excuse protecting persons, especially persons who are marginalized and oppressed or protesting nonviolently, does that mean that we leave them open to the risk of being harmed. You know, it's just something that I think it's an issue I have not seen touched on in a lot of aspects. And I'm trying not to avoid sounding unrealistic and assuming that, you know, the ACLU and other groups can be informed on everything at all times, or that, you know, perhaps we shouldn't give people the burden of the, the you know, the benefit of the doubt. But I don't know. It, it's just something that I think needs to be discussed further because I don't think the far right now represents anything, in my view, remotely close to freedom of speech. But it seems to me that they're seeking more actively to push the envelope to see what can and cannot be said. And I think that more people will lose their lives if we can't find a way to nuance our understandings of free speech in the ways that we've seen other countries and other persons argue for. I apologize for the length of this message, but I just wanted to get some things off my chest and hear your thoughts and the thoughts of others as we continue to move forward in these difficult times. Thanks for the great work, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, in the last few episodes, we have talked on and off again about speech, free speech, hate speech, how to deal with it all, the complications of those issues. And today, I think that I'm going to further clarify 
and confuse this issue. So first, let's clarify. Uh, the way I'm seeing it, there are three basic approaches for at least the left side of the spectrum to approach free speech. To label them, let's call them classical liberal, idealistic liberal, and pragmatic liberal. So the classic liberal is the people you actually hear from the most. They're the ones who will say uh, the the benefits of free speech are self-evident, and we must protect them on principle, and almost no other explanation is needed. That argument falls short for me because I don't see free speech as a principle in and of itself. I see it as a means to another end. I, I see free speech as one tool to use to create a good society. So my principle is I want to create the best society, and now I'm trying to figure out how to do that. And that includes either maintaining absolute free speech, maintaining somewhat regulated free speech, or getting rid of free speech altogether. You know, everything's on the table. Let's figure it out. Now, enter the idealistic liberal who is responding primarily uh, at this moment in time to the Nazis in Charlottesville. And so they say, well, this has gotten out of control. You know, hate speech is clearly doing actual damage and not just because someone drove a car into a crowd of people, but this hate speech is doing damage in and of itself. And so if something is happening that is bad, then we should at least consider making it against the law to do that bad thing. And so that's that's what I call the idealistic liberal because they just hope that if you make something illegal, then it will have the effect that you want it to and that the illegal the, the thing that is now illegal will stop happening as much. Or if it does happen, there are recourse for the damaged parties. And then the last one is the pragmatic liberal. And these people come down on the side saying we should not have hate speech laws, but it's not just on principle. It's based on a pragmatic understanding of the way hate speech laws get used in real life as demonstrated elsewhere. So you can just look and see when we implement hate speech laws, they end up being used either against us or to ends that we shouldn't be advocating for. So the the argument goes basically that because hate speech laws are administered by authorities they're written by and you know carried out by authorities they inevitably reflect the values held by people in authority which i mean especially in America right now as evidenced by today's episode are authoritarians so you wouldn't want to put extra power like the power to decide what speech is allowed and not allowed into the hands of authoritarians. But even in the best case scenario, you have a well-functioning democracy that, uh, you know, the, the authorities of that democracy reflect the values of the majority. That's still dangerous because the values of the majority end up obviously uh, not benefiting the minority. So it's the minority who will have some view or another that the majority will think is too outlandish and they the majority will want to consider it hate speech and that puts those minorities in a dangerous situation and as people on the left 
we're often in that minority or we're sticking up for a minority group of people who are trying to fight for what they see as their rights and many on the left would agree with them that yes you do need your rights and it would be better for you and me and all of society if you were treated better what we want to advocate along with you uh, for those rights but the majority isn't isn't ready to hear it and they say no 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 that, you're you're going too far and what you're saying is actually hateful so those are the dangers that's what the pragmatic liberals will say and and argue that look not you know not based on some arbitrary principle but based on pragmatic reasoning of the actual situation based on experience hate speech laws might sound good in theory but they don't work out well in practice and personally i find i find that argument very persuasive so that's as much as i'm able to clarify this uh, right now but now it has to get more confusing uh so just for instance, to, you know, to back up, everyone agrees on banning physical violence, right? Like we're talking about free speech. Your freedom to swing your fist stops at the bridge of my nose. Like we're all on the same page there. No violence uh, should be legal. Now, there's the arguments that can be made about extra legal use of violence when fighting Nazis, but we're not having that conversation at this moment. So, Everyone agrees that as the law should state it, uh, there should be no physical violence. And so then in the wake of Charlottesville, the conversation that really started picking up steam is that, look, we already have limitations on free speech. We have limitations on libel and slander and, and all these different examples of limitations. And the, the thing that links them all together is harm. And... So we don't allow people to speak in ways that cause harm. And so the argument is that if hate speech causes harm, well, then it should fall into that same category of types of speech that are not protected under the banner of free speech. But we didn't get into the details of what that harm is. It's this sort of amorphous, squishy concept of, well, is it hurting people's feelings? Is it inspiring other people to violence and that's the harm? Is it inspiring people to become white supremacists and the existence of white supremacists is harmful? You know, like what exactly is the harm being done and can we really nail it down? Like who is the victim in this situation? Who would have standing? You know, if you were going to sue, who would have standing? And so thanks to a listener whose name is not in front of me right now for sending me this article by George Lakoff. George Lakoff is often uh, referred to as like the left's answer to Frank Luntz, which is really not fair <laughs> to George Lakoff. Uh, Frank Luntz is a conservative pollster who tries to figure out what words to use to trick people into agreeing with conservative policies. George Lakoff is a linguist and is currently the uh, director of the Center for the Neural Mind and Society. And he writes books about the language we use. And uh, so it's a little bit of a mirror image from Luntz, but he doesn't do like the polling and, and you know, active campaign work to try to figure out how to trick people. So 
This is uh, George Lakoff's article, Why Hate Speech is Not Free Speech, and it's a very short article, so I'm just going to read the whole thing to you. So, Lakoff says, Freedom in a free society is supposed to be for all. Therefore, freedom rules out imposing on the freedom of others. You are free to walk down the street, but not to keep others from doing so. The imposition on the freedom of others can come in overt, immediate physical form, thugs coming to attack with weapons. Violence may be a kind of expression, but it is certainly not free speech. Like violence— Hate speech can also be a physical imposition on the freedom of others. That is because language has a physiological effect imposed physically on the neural system with long-term crippling effects. Here's the reason. All thought is carried out by neural circuitry. It does not float in air. Language neurally activates thought. Language can thus change brains, both for the better and the worse. Hate speech changes the brains of those hated for the worse, creating toxic stress, fear, and distrust, all physical, all in one's neural circuitry, active every day. This internal harm can be even more severe than an attack with a fist. It imposes on the freedom to think and therefore act free of fear, threats, and distrust. It imposes on one's ability to think and act like a fully free citizen for a long time. That's why hate speech imposes on the freedom of those targeted by the hate. Since being free in a free society requires not imposing on the freedom of others— Hate speech does not fall under the category of free speech. Hate speech can also change the brains of those with mild prejudice, moving it toward hate and threatening action. When hate is physically in your brain, then you think hate and feel hate. You are moved to act to carry out what you physically, in your neural system, think and feel. That is why hate speech is not mere speech, and since it imposes on the freedom of others— it is not an instance of freedom. The long-term, often crippling physical effects of hate speech on the neural systems of those hated does not have a status in law, since our neural systems do not have a status in our legal system, at least not yet. This is a gap between the law and the truth. So, if your freedom to swing your fist ends at the bridge of my nose, then why doesn't your freedom to speak end at the point where you begin to rearrange the neurology of my brain. Now, if we had a broad social understanding of the harm caused by hate speech, sort of in the way that we are finally coming to terms with mental illnesses like PTSD, then maybe we could have a different conversation about hate speech laws. Uh, with, without this understanding, Governments can feel free, like the pragmatists will uh, point out, to overstep and use hate speech laws against just about anyone they don't like. But with a better understanding of the workings of emotions and the physical effects they can have on us, we may be able to construct hate speech laws that take these effects into consideration, and they can be properly limited to when real harm is done, not just when a government doesn't like what's being said. Maybe. Uh, if you want more information on this, it doesn't talk about hate speech at all, but there's a really interesting episode of this uh, NPR show called Invisibilia. Go to the episode from June 1st of this year. It's titled Emotions, and there's a bizarre court case that goes through this whole process and actually talks about how 
emotions are being seen differently by courts now than they used to be. And so I, I think it's very relevant to this conversation. And just to finish off, I, I think that our lack of understanding on this subject stems pretty much entirely from our inability to see the damage being done. You know, because a physical attack, we can see it. We understand that. Um, anyone with an invisible disability will be well aware of this concept. So, the, you know, the person with a broken arm is going to find it much easier to find care than the person with depression, even though depression can be much more debilitating and can even lead to death, whereas a broken arm, not so much. So as Lakoff puts it, there may be a gap between our laws and the truth of neurological damage to the targets of hate speech, but because the lion's share of the harm being done is invisible, my guess is that it's going to be a good long time before it's dealt with in any kind of reasonable way that can also take into consideration the concerns of the pragmatists. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on this or anything else, especially if you are a free speech lawyer or a neurologist. As always, the number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on patreon.com. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past